0: So here we are, seventh week of a ten-week series called Emmaus. And if you remember, if you've been here for each of these weeks, or at least one of these weeks, we're starting off with the same text of Scripture out of the Gospel according to Luke. And each week, we're taking a look at a different translation, a different angle of that same passage, and how that, in many ways, opens up a door for us into the Old Testament. Well, today, we're going to take a look at The Voice. It's a great translation, and that group of scholars and leaders put it together in the format of... A screenplay. So we have some readers here, not to do a five-part harmony. You don't want them doing that with me or me doing that with them. But to read and to hear. And as you do hear, I want you to hear this is God's word out of the gospel according to Luke.
1: That same day, two other disciples, not of the eleven, are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. As they walk along, they talk back and forth about all that has transpired during the recent days. While they're talking, discussing, and conversing, Jesus catches up to them and begins walking with them. But for some reason, they don't recognize him.
0: You two seem deeply engrossed in conversation. What are you talking about as you walk along this road?
1: They stop walking and just stand there, looking sad. One of them, Cleopas is his name, speaks up.
2: You must be the only visitor in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about what's been going on over the last few days. What are you talking about?
3: It's all about the man named Jesus of Nazareth. He was a mighty prophet who did amazing miracles and preached powerful messages in the sight of God and everyone around.
2: Our chief priests and authorities handed him over to be executed, crucified in fact.
3: We had been hoping that he was the one, you know, the one who would liberate all Israel and bring God's promises.
2: Anyway, on top of all of this, just this morning, the third day after the execution, some women in our group really shocked us.
3: They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't see his body anywhere. Then they came back and told us they did see something, a vision of heavenly messengers. And these messengers said that Jesus was alive.
2: Some people in our group went to the tomb to check it out. And just as the women had said, it was empty. But they didn't see Jesus.
0: Come on, man. Why are you being so foolish? Why are your heart so sluggish when it comes to believing what the prophets have been saying all along? Didn't it have to be this way? Didn't the liberating king have to experience these sufferings in order to come into his glory?
1: Then he begins with Moses and continues, prophet by prophet, explaining the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures, showing how they were talking about the very things that happened to Jesus. About this time, they are nearing their destination. Jesus keeps walking ahead as if he has no plans to stop there, but they convince him to join them.
2: Please be our guest, it's getting late and soon it will be too dark to walk.
1: So he accompanies them to their home. When they sit down at the table for dinner, he takes the bread in his hands, he gives thanks for it, and then he breaks it and hands it to them. At that instant, two things happen simultaneously. Their eyes are suddenly opened so they recognize him and he instantly vanishes
3: just disappears before their eyes. Amazing! Weren't our hearts on fire within us while he was talking to us on the road?
2: Didn't we feel it all coming clear as he explained the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures?
3: So they get up immediately
1: and rush back to Jerusalem, all seven miles, where they find the 11 gathered together, the 11 plus the number of others. Before Cleopas and his companion can tell their story, the others have their own story to tell. One of the 11 said, The Lord is risen indeed, it's true, he appeared to Simon. The two men report their own experience, their conversation along the road, their moment of realization and recognition as he broke the bread.
0: This is God's word. So for those of us who are just getting caught up on this series, I wanna remind you that this text of scripture actually reveals to us this truth, that the living word, that is Jesus Christ, actually says that all of the written word the Old and the New Testament, all of the Hebrew Scriptures are all about Him. They all point to Him. And so what we've been doing in the midst of this series, we're taking a look at very familiar passages, very familiar characters in Scripture, Abraham, Job, Joseph, and we're seeing how these stories, these historical events actually point to and remind us of who Jesus really is. And so today what we're going to do, our Old Testament text, our character in the Old Testament, is Esther. Now, if you have your Bibles, perhaps you uh, brought them with you on your phone or maybe in your bag, or perhaps you want to use the one in front of you uh, in the pew. Why don't you grab those out? And I want you to turn to Esther chapter 4. And as you are turning to Esther chapter 4, so just as a little hint, it's before Job. It's after Genesis. So go all the way to the left, start making your way right. That's what I do. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Keep going, keep going, keep going. If you hit Job, you've gone too far. It's right before Job there. And I want you to go to Esther 4. And I want you to stop at Esther four thirteen. 13. I just want you to kind of hold your Bibles open, keep that screen lit in front of you. And I want to give you a little background before we get to this moment. Now, let me say this. Now, the book of Esther definitely is the most... Secular book in the Bible. Not one mention of God, not one mention of prayer, not mention of any religious activity. In fact, if you were to take the book of Esther and turn it into a television show, you could not show it on the networks. It would have to be a cable show. This is much more Game of Thrones than the Happy Days, it's intense. And yet scripture says that all of scripture, all of it is breathed out by God. All of scripture is profitable. That means not one word is out of place. Scripture is authoritative in our life for both faith and practice. And so we're gonna find here in the most secular book of the Bible, which by the way, King Xerxes from the movie 300, if you ever saw that film, the the bad guy, the enemy in that film, This historical figure, that that true story, well, that King Xerxes is the same King Xerxes in this story. So I want you to, with all of that background, get a little bit more background. And I've enlisted the Beller drama department, and no, they're not going to do a Game of Thrones version of this. It's not a Happy Days version. It's their, you know, it's their Club Emmaus version. And so why don't you check out the screens as we were reminded of this story that perhaps some of us have never even heard before in our life. Check this out.
4: Please welcome your next performer to Club Emmaus. This is a story about my lovely cousin Esther and how she stopped the evil Haman and subsequently saved our people from extinction. My name is Mordecai. Seriously, nothing? All right. Well, the Hebrew people have been exiled from our home in Jerusalem and were being held in captivity in Babylon during the reign of King Xerxes. As my cousin Esther her parents had died, so I took her into my household and I raised her as my own daughter, as any God-fearing man would have done. Again, nothing. Okay. Anyway, at the time, the king held a contest to find a new queen because his old queen had betrayed him. And my cousin, being beautiful, both inside and out, as we choose our want to be, was chosen to be one of his new wives. She prepared for 12 long months, and when she was finally ready, she appeared before the king, and when he saw her, he set the crown on her head and declared her Queen Esther. But because I had warned her, she never told the king that she was a Jew, which is a good thing, because soon after, the evil Haman convince Xerxes to kill all the Hebrews in the land. Knowing there's no other way, I asked my cousin to go to the king and beg for mercy for our people. But she knew that anyone who appeared before the king without being invited was doomed to die unless the king held up his golden scepter, to which I said, So, if you refuse this, deliverance for the Jews will come from some other place, but you and your relatives will surely die. And who's to say you have not been elevated to royalty for such a time as this? So, even though it was against the law, even though her life was in danger, Esther put on her royal robes and went into the inner courtyard before the king. And when he saw her, the king held out his royal scepter and said, Queen Esther! Ask anything you want, even if it's half the kingdom, and I will give it to you. And she said, this is my petition, that you save the lives of my people, for there is one who wants to annihilate us. And the king demanded, who would do such a thing? She said, I am a Jew, and the evil Haman is our enemy. At that, the king jumped to his feet. In a rage, he demanded that instead of the Jews, Haman be executed. My cousin, you see, had been elevated by God for such a time. As was I, her cousin Mordecai. Cousin of Esther. Yeah. Esther, Esther, Esther. Yeah. Esther and Mordecai.
0: A you know, great summary. I know that not all of us are familiar with the story of Esther. I want to fill in a couple little details in there. Now, one of the very fascinating things is this: is that Mordecai, who had adopted Esther, actually had outside the king's gates heard of a plot to kill King Xerxes. So he passes along this plan to Esther, who is the queen. She passes that on to King Xerxes, and they discover this plot. They end up identifying the assassins, and his life is saved. And because of that. Mordecai's name is written down in their history books in which the people, the whole, the whole empire is reminded of Mordecai's saving of the king. Now, immediately after that, as we begin to read the book of Esther, and keep, again, open to Esther 4, I'll get there in a moment. We're going to Esther 4.13. If you closed it, go back there. Uh, and as we're heading there, I want to remind you that King Xerxes actually elevates this man who we heard about, Haman, to the second most powerful position in the and, the empire. and because he had so much power, the entire nation would bow down and worship him, except for Mordecai. He knew he could only bow down and worship God alone. And yet he was the only one who didn't bow down and worship this man named Haman. So as a result, Haman was enraged. And so he makes the decision, he makes the choice, and convinces King Xerxes to not just kill Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, the entire nation of Israel, all the Hebrews. And here's the interesting thing. Esther had kept the fact that she was Jewish, that she was a Hebrew from her husband. It had been about five years now. And so she could have, trying to save her own life, kept quiet, allowed the edict to go about. Her people would have been wiped out, but at least she would have lived. Now I want you to think about this. Esther, she, she wasn't a faithful Jewish follower of the one God. The fact that her husband didn't even know she was Jewish means that, that, she, that she wasn't living out her faith. And then something happens. Mordecai then goes to Esther and says, you've got to do something about it. You, you have the place of power. You have the king's ear. You can go, and you can actually unravel this. But then Esther, as you heard, says, but I can't. I, I can't go unless I have an invitation. And then Mordecai sends a message to Esther, and this is his message. We're finally now at Esther 4, verse 13. And if you could turn there, and I want you to hear these words. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Now, in those two verses, there are two very weighty, tremendous theological truths. On one hand, you have the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that he has a plan, that there's nothing that can thwart his plan. But then on the other hand, you have the theological truth of free will, that we have choices, that we're not robots, that we can choose to be obedient to God or not, that we can choose to live faithful lives or not. Both of them are found here in this passage, because Mordecai says this in verse 13 again, do not think that you're going to escape, but then if you keep silent, if you use your free will to not speak up, to not be an advocate for your people. If you, if you don't use your power for the powerless, listen to this in verse 14. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. Because Mordecai believed that God was who he said he was. And God had already promised that he was faithful to a thousand generations, that nobody would be able to destroy his people. And so Mordecai believed, yes, that no matter what happens, God's going to save his people. But Esther, you have an opportunity. You have a choice. Maybe for such a time as this, you've been brought to power as the queen, the spouse of the most powerful human being on earth. Use that for good. You know, it's often been said that, that sovereignty is at odds with free will. But really, when you think about it, it's been said other ways, that both of those things are like two pedals on a bicycle. You need both to move forward. Yes, we should pray, but yes, God has a plan. Yes, we should have faith, but God is always faithful. Yes, we should make decisions, but God always works together for good, those called according to His purposes. You see, this bicycle requires both. Perhaps some of you have heard of the story of the, the old fisherman who was out fishing in a lake and he was in an aluminum boat and it had a metal oars and he was out there and all of a sudden this huge storm came rolling in and he knew because he was in a metal boat that this would be bad. He would be toast if the lightning came down. So as he comes and he sees it closer, he begins to row. I mean, I'd row. He starts rowing. He's got to get off the lake, got to get out of the water. But then all of a sudden he puts the oars down and he realizes, oh, maybe I should pray. I mean, scripture talks about God being the Lord of the storm and he's done it before. Maybe he could divert the storm. So he begins to pray. But then as it gets closer, he's like, I got to row more. I got to row. So he stops praying and starts rowing. But then he's like, well, maybe I should pray. And he stops rowing and he starts praying. And he's kind of stuck between two things. Do I row? Do I pray? Do I row? Do I pray? And then it's getting closer. It's almost on top of him. Rain coming down. He's covered in water. He's in this metal boat. Lightning's about to kill him. And then he makes the decision I'm going to row while I pray. He's doing both at the same time. And the truth is, is, that's what our life should be. Yes, God is in control. Yes, God can calm the storms. Yes, God has this wonderful plan. But at the same time, we've got to have faith. We've got to step out in faith. We've got we've to love others. We've got to trust. We've got to make decisions. We can't just let go and let God. It's not found in the Bible. It's, you know, it's cute on a mug or maybe if you sew it onto a little pillow on your couch at home. You know, it's kind of cute, but it's not found in Scripture, this idea of letting go and letting God. You've got to do both. You've got to row. You've got to pray. Both feet on the pedal. And Esther, though she hasn't been faithful in the past, she's not perfect. Her husband didn't even know that she worshiped God. She probably participated in pagan worship with her husband. She responds and she says this. This is in verse 15. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Simple obedience. She makes that decision to be a voice for the voiceless. She uses her power to stand up for the powerless. And so what does she do? As we heard in that summary, she goes before the king. And as she goes before the king, the king actually sees her. The king allows her in. And it's this amazing moment. He says, what can I do for you? And this is what she says. I want to throw a party. You want to throw a party? I want to throw a party. I want to throw a party for you, king, and Haman. Remember the evil bad guy. So a party is thrown. They all show up to it. And there's this party. And then at the party, the king says, "Okay, queen, Esther, what can I do for you? I mean, what's your request? I mean, we're throwing a party. But what's your real request? She says, Let's throw another party. This is Esther 6. It really happened. There's more partying in this book than any book of the Bible. In fact, it begins with 180 days straight party. A lot of partying in this passage. Remember Game of Thrones? This isn't happy days? Okay. In the midst of that party, the first one, in which Esther makes the request for the second party, everybody leaves that first party. You've got the king, you've got Haman, you've got Esther. They leave the party. And as Haman is leaving... He sees Mordecai, this one who had not bowed down to worship him. And again, Mordecai doesn't bow down to worship him. So he's infuriated. He goes back home. This evil guy, the second in command, goes to his friends and his wife. and He says all these things. And he says, I, I have all these things. I have all this power. I just got invited to a party, invited by the queen herself. I was with the king. And yet I can't stand the fact that Mordecai won't worship me. He had all these things, and that one thing, he was so bent out of shape. And what happens next? Haman's wife comes up with a plan. She says, you know what we should do? We should kill Mordecai. Well, how do they do it? They don't just poison They don't just do anything. She says, let's build something in our backyard. This really happened. This is, remember Game of Thrones? A 75-foot-high pole, a big stake in the ground. In fact, this was the precursor to the Roman style of execution that was the cross. Seventy-five foot high. And the wife says, we'll build this in our backyard. You can then impale Mordecai on it. Game of Thrones, right? Impale Mordecai on that for all to see, for that to be an example. So now he's happy. Now he's excited. He goes to the party. Now, this is the second party. And at the party, the king says, okay, I want to do something for the man the king delights in. And Haman is thinking, oh, that's me. That's me. That's got to be me. I'm second in command. And then all of a sudden, the king says, it's Mordecai. Because that night, uh, Xerxes had been reading those history books and was reminded that Mordecai had saved him in the past. And so he says, I want you to get him. He's saying to Haman, the bad guy, I want you to get Mordecai. Put on a robe on him and a ring on him. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the party, the party begins. Haman can't believe what's going on. He's about to kill his foe. In the midst of all of this, all of a sudden, Esther reveals that she is, for the first time, she reveals, I'm a Jew. I'm part of the people that are about to be annihilated. For the risk of death, Esther goes before and identifies herself with the nation of Israel and says, I'm going to be killed unless you do something about it. And the king says, well, who did this? And they point to Haman. And at the very end, and I want you to turn here to Esther 7, at the very end of Esther 7, the king's trying to figure out what to do. He realizes his wife for the first time is a Jewish woman, and he's about to annihilate her. And a eunuch says this in verse 9, Then Harbona, this is Esther 7, verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet. And the king said, Hang him on that. So the very thing that Haman created in his own backyard to kill his foe, he is killed on." That's intense, right? And we look at the story and we're like, wow, that's violent. But go Esther. I mean, you had some boldness there. You had some gumption, right? And perhaps you might think that I'm going to say as the pastor, as the preacher, you know, let's, let's all be like Esther, to have that boldness, to step out in faith and to share our faith and maybe even be a voice for the voiceless. Yes, that is true, but that's, that's not my point. You might even say, well, well, maybe we should be like Mordecai. You know, we shouldn't bow down and worship other things and worship our God alone. Yes, that is true, but that's not my, my point for today. In fact, we're in the middle of a series, and I'll remind you, called Emmaus in which Jesus goes through the Hebrew Scriptures, all these stories, and he points to these things as a sign, as a symbol, a historical reality that points to him. And you look at the story and you might say, okay, I like Esther, I like Mordecai. I can imagine myself one of those people, but but I can't stand Haman. I mean, he kind of got what he deserved. Well, let me tell you this. Scripture says that you're not Esther. That you're not Mordecai. Scripture says that I am, that you are, that we are Haman. We are Haman. And then you might say, Drew, I don't like this story. No, I don't like this story anymore. I, you know, I liked it before with Esther and the Mordecai, but don't tell me I'm Haman or Equal. I don't like this story anymore. Let's get through this story. Let's get to next week, King David, Father's Day. That'll be great. But what do you mean we're Haman? I'm not Haman. I'm not an enemy of God. Well, what does Scripture say about us? Every single person, no matter what they've done or failed to do, Scripture says all of us can't live up to the perfection of that God requires for us to be his people. It goes so far to say that all of us, every single one of us are born as an enemy of God. And yes, Haman got what he deserved. Scripture says that the penalty, the payment for our sin, our brokenness, not living up to God's standard, is death. Now you might really dislike this story Well, let me tell you of what a hero Jesus is. Because Jesus was able to do what Esther couldn't. You see, it would have been pretty amazing if somebody actually stepped in and rescued Haman, who didn't deserve to be rescued, actually said, kill me rather than Haman. That would have been pretty amazing, right? And really, there was only one person qualified that had the power to do that, the original accuser. And that was Esther. But she didn't do that. She let Haman die. Well, let me tell you, Jesus did what Esther could not. Esther, at the risk of her life, was willing to give up the comforts of her palace and her amazing life to save her people. You know what Jesus did? He actually gave his life. Not only for his people but for his enemies. The apostle Paul, one of the first leaders of the church says in a letter to Rome, Romans chapter six, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are born as enemies of God. I am, you are, we are, we are Haman. The penalty for that is death. That's where we're all headed. And yet Jesus steps in in a way that Esther could not and says, take me. You see, Jesus went to the cross not as a victim, but victorious. And I love, as you continue to read the book of Esther, you come to a phrase in Esther chapter 9. Don't turn there, but you can do it later. Not all the translations have this, but in the original Hebrew, there's this great phrase where the enemy of God's people are coming in. They're about to kill the nation of Israel. And it says this awesome phrase, The reverse occurred, and God's people triumphed over their enemies, all because Esther was faithful, the risk of her life to save her people. Well, guess what? Jesus went to the cross. He died for you and me. He took the punishment, the the penalty that we deserved. He was qualified to do that because Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He lived a perfect life. And so he took all of that upon himself and he went to the grave. So we didn't have to. But the amazing thing is this. Even though death defeated Jesus once, Jesus defeated death once and for all because he burst forth from the tomb. And as Paul, one of the early leaders of the church said, death has been swallowed up in victory. You see, Satan thought he had the upper hand when he killed Jesus. But the exact reverse occurred. Through that we have life. Because of Jesus' death we are invited to be part of God's family. Because of his sacrifice we are all reconciled to God. No longer enemies but now friends, family, part of God's people. That should set us free to live for our King, a King who is a better Esther, who did what she could not. The amazing thing then is Jesus tells his followers after he's been raised from the grave, he says, you know what? I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And as the Father has sent me out of the comforts of heaven to be with you, I'm going to send you out into the world to be witnesses to my love, ambassadors of hope and truth and of life. And here we are on the birthday of the church. We're reminded as we even read in Scripture in Acts chapter 2, God's Spirit was poured out among His people to be witnesses to His love here and around the world. Every single one of us, when we choose to be a follower of Jesus, not only gets adopted into God's family, becomes part of God's people, but we receive God's Spirit empowering us to live finally like Esther, to live like Mordecai because Jesus empowers us to do those things. Now, there's people in this room that in a very public way are going to leave the comforts of their, their routines, their life, and their family, and, and, and their homes, and they're actually going to go. They're going to go to Haiti, they're going to go to Brazil, and they're going to be witnesses and ambassadors just like the early church. Now, I want to pray for them. So if you're in the room, I know we did this in the earlier service, but if you are on one of those trips, going to Haiti, or if you're going to Brazil, would you stand? I want to recognize you, and I want for us to visually see. Why don't you turn around and see some of these people? And they are... Yeah, we can thank them. I heard that (laughs) clap. And they can stay standing. I saw you, Matt Jones. Keep standing, my man. <laughs> man, we go way back, don't we? Over 10 years. So glad you are going on this trip. Now, I, w- I want to pray for them. And as we pray, I want us to be reminded that every single one of us who's put our faith and trust in Jesus has received God's spirit. And it's a spirit that empowers us and emboldens us to be sent out to our family, to our friends, to our neighborhoods. To like Esther, who has power, we've all been given power and influence in our lives to be a voice for the voiceless, to stand in for those that can't stand up for themselves. So if you're around, maybe if you put a hand up just as a sign of encouragement and prayer, and I would love to pray for them and to pray for us. God, I thank you for each one of these people in this room, for those listening as well that they would be a tangible reminder, God, of how not only you sent Jesus to us, but you've given us your spirit so that you would send these people out and all of us to be witnesses and ambassadors for you. May you go before them. God, I thank you that you're already in Haiti, you're already in Brazil, and that they're gonna be joining you in the work that you're already doing. And I pray that they would go, knowing that they are loved, that despite their brokenness that they have brought in, And that all of us can now be called your people, God. Because one of your own, Jesus, your son, fully God, fully man, laid down his life for us. May we have that same attitude and spirit as we walk in faith with you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people sit together. Amen. Amen.